You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Baha'i houses of worship aren't only places to meditate and pray, but they are intended to become spiritual centers for community life. Baha'is regard houses of worship as one of the most vital institutions in the world, as they bring together people of all faiths and backgrounds to pray and reflect on both the spiritual and material progress of their communities. The Baha'i house of worship is considered both a gift from Baha'is to the community and a demonstration of their faith. It is a building where men and women of all races and religions can unite, turning their hearts to the Creator in the knowledge that they are all brothers and sisters. So far, eight Baha'i houses of worship have been established in the world, one on each continent, and we are now seeing their construction and completion at both national and regional levels. In March of 2018, the first woven designs of the House of Worship in Papua New Guinea were revealed in a special ceremony that celebrated the diversity of this Pacific Island nation. Cloud9 is excited to have the opportunity to speak with the architects Said Garanfar and Henry Lape from their office in the country's capital, Port Moresby, to learn about the location of the temple site, history of the Baha'i community, their design and collaborative process, the inspiration behind their woven structure, challenges they encountered, personal reflections, and what this Baha'i house of worship really means for the people of Papua New Guinea. Henry and Sai, thank you so much for joining us on Cloud9. Thank you, Sadi. Pleasure to thank be you. here. Pleasure, yes. Now, I'll start by sharing that in a letter dated April 2012, the Universal House of Justice shared that houses of worship are an integral part of the process of community building, and its construction represents the important milestone in the development of a community. In that same letter, the House of Justice announced that two countries, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Papua New Guinea, had demonstrably met the requisite criteria for construction of a house of worship. The enrichment of devotional life in the community of Papua New Guinea was one criteria, and a highly significant development for Papua New Guinea, which will only be further advanced by the construction of this temple. Another criteria was that a large number of the country's population was already engaging in Baha'i-inspired community-building initiatives. For many of our listeners, Papua New Guinea is this very small, isolated, and perhaps for some, a little unknown country in the Pacific. Could you briefly share a bit about the country of Papua New Guinea, the population, the culture, and the general reality of the people? has about over 700 different languages. These are typical languages. And so you can see there's about almost 800 different... Um, and if, uh, counting the dialects, it will be beyond uh, almost a thousand dialects. There's about 22 provinces in the country. And where is the temple situated in the city of Port Moresby? The temple site is located in, the, in Tokarara, um, which is very central actually. It's only a few minutes from a few minutes drive from the um, one of the town centers, you could say. And um, what we did about a year ago or a year and a half ago already was to place a large bamboo post oh. <laughs> or pole in the middle of the 
platform where the temple would be built, roughly the same size as the temple itself, so huge, um, uh, maybe long. just just shy of the full height, maybe 12, 13 meters high. And um, then we, Henry and I drove around town um, the, from along the various roads that we speculated you might be able to see this from, and it, um, it was uh, pretty striking uh, how very exposed the site actually is and uh, how much of that bamboo pole you could see. So it's not just glimpses of the very top or the tip, but the almost the entire mm, height, the full is. height, was visible from um, along this major arterial road that um, fronts the eastern boundary of the property. And um, we just know that it's going to be incredibly um, exposed, huge traffic around here, very prominent location, and we're fortunate to uh, have this property, actually, for the Baha'i friends here to have this it's, property. It's, we call it, uh, I, I reckon it's, um, it's divinely guided, because um, just after the announcement of the House of Worship and when the design process was ongoing, the government decided to fix up the, 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 the major road, because... The building stands at, there are two valleys, the Wagane Valley and the June Valley, and it's at the junction of those two valleys. And that's where also the major arterial roads are, and that's where major traffic And So it connects the inland, the valley, to the coastline outside, the harbor. So the government decided to build, upgrade that road, putting it a four lane with the meridian in between. And then just recently, they've just, they're now completing another, what we they say, a boulevard which actually the, it terminates right at the end of the property where the temple is, and it's in, in the access of the Parliament House. And it's pretty stunning. I mean, three years ago, literally three years ago, neither of these two projects that Henry mentioned, neither the highway upgrade nor that boulevard, were in existence, and um, there might not have even been concrete plans for the boulevard up until recently. Um, so we, you know, on the one hand... It's uh, it's just a road, but on the other hand, it's an incredible development um, for the setting of the temple and the. Um, as another friend described it, it creates this vista, um, uh, approaching the temple in a beautiful landscape, um, within which this somehow jewel will will be set. That's quite um, fortuitous, and uh, yeah, as Henry said, really. Uh, somehow miraculous that these things happen just ahead of the, the, the construction. Project. I bet. How fortuitous. Uh, so now, the Baha'i faith was first introduced to Papua New Guinea by an Australian Baha'i woman named Violet Honky in the 1950s. Could you elaborate more on this history, as I don't feel like I've done it justice, and fast forward to how the Baha'i community of Papua New Guinea looks today? She was a young nurse. She came up in 1954 and introduced the faith and then it was in that same year, a few months after she arrived here, the first Papua New Baha'i declared. And so she's been knighted and she's currently resting in one of the cemeteries. The Baha'i community, we could, on record it's about 6,000, but it could be more than that. Sorry, is that 6,000 Baha'is or 60,000 Baha'is? 60, I'm glad I got that cleared up. Um, so I think at this point, it's really important just to give our listeners a timeline before we head into learning more about the design process. Uh, the announcement, and, and actually correct me if I'm wrong, 
Um, the announcement of the House of Worship in Papua New Guinea was in early 2012, and both of you submitted your designs independently in 2014, when the National Spiritual Assembly, which is the governing body of the Baha'is of Papua New Guinea, when they began to accept their design proposals. But your collaboration didn't begin until 2016 and took almost 18 months to complete. The final design was officially revealed in a ceremony that took place in March of 2018. Can you briefly walk us through the design application process and the story behind your creative collaboration? Sure. Um, so, yeah, as early as 2014, um, some architects in the region, you could say, um, architects with some sort of natural connection to Papua New Guinea, as I understand it, were invited um, with a design brief uh, to contribute ideas and concepts for the for the National House of Worship of PNG. And there were some requirements, very, very practical things, such as 300 to 400 um, seating for 300 to 400 people, a height between 15 and 20 meters. Um, at the time, the budget wasn't stipulated, so we kind of went wild. And uh, uh, what else? Um, but with that said, there are principles involved of uh, you know modesty, economy, balanced with grace and dignity. So it was clear from the other guidance that there should be uh, that there would be a tricky balance between uh, to find. So we then, yeah, I understand um, the tricky thing here. The tricky thing about PNG is the diversity and how to. Um, accommodate the hundreds of different cultural groups within this country with a concept that everyone would identify with and relate to without seeing you know, one culture or another as being more prominently represented. I feel a bit out of place. Henry is the one to, who could speak <laughs> about this more eloquently. But that, that was the, really a profound challenge and um, and uh, we, yeah, initially, you know, there were concepts such as the bird of paradise, which is a national symbol. It's become a national symbol. It's a it's beautiful, a yeah, beautiful, beautiful bird. You can Google it. There are many varieties of this bird, but it appears on the currency, on all sorts of emblems. Did you both think of this idea? Uh, I did. I did think about it, <laughs> but then I opted for something else. Yeah. <laughs> And the reason for that is that really, although it's been adopted as a national symbol, it's not really a, a, a universal. universal symbol. It's not a bird that appears throughout the country. It's a bird that would be very you know, un, unfamiliar to a lot of people um, in, I don't know, 80% of the country. You know, they wouldn't uh, encounter this and have nothing to do with their costumes or, and so forth. Interesting. So what other ideas did you come up with that led you to the concept of weaving? We came up with so totally two different ideas. I came up with one idea. My concept was really about sharing. And um, the initial concept was about sharing because we have this tradition. It's, not on, it's also in the highlands and the coast where, in, where there's tribal fights or where there's marriage ceremonies or where there's uh, big occasions happening. And naming of names and in people exchange food or what we call exchange baskets and that's the occasion where you bring people 
together, even in the coast, even in the highlands. And there's a lot of food being exchanged. And, you know, that's how you create affinities in your association with other tribes. And it's a way also of uh, settling conflicts among people. So my, the concept was food. I mean, mm. the idea of bringing together. And then also, when you think about food, you think about um, the representation of food or interpretation of what food means. Food, basically, in, in the local interpretation, would mean news. When someone dreams, have a, has a dream about somebody giving him food, that will be interpreted as someone bringing him a new message, a new, you know, news. So that was the, one of the conce- concepts that we came And then finally it evolved from that to what we came up with, the basket, and then finally... Mm-hmm. And it's interesting um, because, you know, being so diverse, we, it was a challenge to find a common ground, a common... Thing and almost everything that people engage with is all with woven stuff, walls, roofs, floors, baskets, mats. I also understand that you involved the local community by visiting a local high school's art class. What did you share with them? What sort of parameters did you express and what was the outcome of this visit? It was a crash course on, we, we just brought them to an architectural design studio. The students are divided into groups and each of them have to come up with their own schemes. And it was interesting. Uh, almost uh, half of the gr- group, the teams, they came up with the concept of weaving. Yeah, we introduced the house of worship as a, as a universal place of worship that would be open to the followers of all faiths, that even these guys and their families would be most welcome once it's erected and... Um, yeah, and then stress the idea of what, you know, what is an image that um, really, really all Papua New Guineans can relate to and what is a form that might be seen as being sacred. And they came up with, yeah, quite beautiful, um, even not just the concept of weaving, but even the forms, proportions. I think it was for a 15 or half an hour exercise, 15 minute, 20 minute exercise, it was um, yeah, pretty inspiring for us to see. And of course, yeah, a big confirmation. How confirming for you both. Uh, you just touched on the familiarity of, of basket weaving, um, that it's a common practice for everyone. It's a very inclusive kind of art form. Could you elaborate more on how this art form of basket weaving represents both the physical and perhaps spiritual attributes of the people of Papua New Guinea? The concept of basket was universal, but the element of sacredness was something that was um, that had to be represented too. And um, there is a common icon throughout the um, country about the spirit house, because traditional people build spirit houses, and that's where you know, sacred, that's considered sacred. And for them, that, that image of the spirit art is a, is a, is a, it represents something of sacredness. So that was the element that was incorporated. Basically, the form itself was a, basically a secular building, secular form. So we incorporated the um, spirit house entrance, canopies, so that it can now, that now brings in the association, the element of sacredness now comes, because any Papua New Guinea, once getting looking at it can you know 
that quickly associate with the the concept of sacredness. right. So friends can enter knowing that this is a sacred and and spiritual space. What are some of the other special features that we should be expecting when the temple is complete? Are there any special or new innovations that come mm. with this design? I think one one feature that we hope um, will stand out are the carved surfaces. Uh, vast carved surfaces surfaces to the underside of these canopies um, and also to lining the structure in some areas on the inside, similar to the images that uh, you would have seen by now. Um, how we go about this, practically speaking, we're still working on, um, but we have some ideas and some very valuable contacts locally. Um, so, in the best case scenario, this would be local timber carved by local carvers um, with a design which would also be Papua New Guinean, um, authentic Papua New Guinean, but not regionally specific. So, picking up on patterns as opposed to icons, probably, and uh, and so on. But and that that should be that's the thing that uh, people will pass beneath as they enter the door handle. They will. Uh, touch um, they'll have close contact with this beautiful timber surface that will uh, be spending a lot of energy on getting right and and you know the, the structure itself is steel the outer cladding gives a woven appearance uh, from from a distance especially and uh, would also be quite interesting up close but this timber surface is what will hopefully give it a truly local feel because houses here are made of timber and yeah. so is the spirit house or all traditional houses in the villages apart from maybe the mud uh, there are some <laughs> mud houses mud houses will there be mud used on the house of worship <laughs> only no. when it rains <laughs> no. um, so you've already mentioned the spirit house but how does this house differ to any other house of worship in the region say a spirit house or a church uh, and how will this change the community's attitude or approach to spirituality? There is this, um, there's some segments of population who are really strong Christians. This, the Christianity is a major dominating religion in the country. Um, but people, generally people, are comfortable with, as long as it's something to do with God and spirituality. The element that's... Um, pretty much comes into contact is the um, again element the use of materials wood being the one and the, the form of the canopy entrance canopy and um, the, when you elevate the its approach to the um, the approach to the temple is also significant because you create this anticipated approach that's when you know the main feature that they see, they don't see the dome. They only see the dome as a backdrop, but then see, as you're climbing up the stairs, up the hill to go in, then you see this huge gabled form. And that, you know, if it's, it's like four meters high, just the, um, the proportion of the entrance now makes, it brings about a feeling of sacredness. But Papuanians naturally, not only in the, the major forms of commonness is the Sipik house or spirit houses, but there's also in every other part of the country where they also have the same similar forms. Most of them no longer exist. But um, people 
like only the only form that's been interpreted from it is the parliament house. And the good uh, the thing about the uh, house of worship now is um, there are according to the Baha'i um, guidance from the Baha'i writings is that there should be no effigies or any other form of symbolism that can you know ca- that can be misrepresented. So I think, um, I, like Said said, all the carvings will be handcrafted, but it will be a universal theme, nothing specific to any any other group wins or region. So we're trying to create something that's universal. It's handcrafted locally using local timber, and um, that's something that people can easily relate to without doing um, an artwork that is specific to a certain region. It's, that's, so it becomes universal. Any other Papua New Guinea can easily relate to. Yeah, I'd imagine that would be a very interesting challenge for an architect to have to create an artwork that is so inclusive and representative of such a diverse population. Yeah, that's right. I'll get back to your other question in a second, but this carving project, I was thinking about it the other day, and it would easily be the largest... Uh, carving project or if you the largest carving um, exercise in PNG for a single building or a single project there are some some uh, the National Museum the newly created Apex house these these things they have beautiful examples of carving maybe to the doors to um, some columns you know like uh, um, totem poles but f- 400 square meters or so of carved surfaces is pretty much unheard of and will be yeah, truly a challenge for, <laughs> for the crew that's doing it. Um, regarding the differences between the house of worship um, and other places of worship, as well as the spirit house, one, one thing that came to mind was the um, function of the space that for the vast majority of the time, I think it'll be a silent place of, of reflection and worship. So um, when there's no, no uh, program or service on, it would be a space that a very um, uh, welcoming, silent space with no, um, what would you call it? There's no... It's, no, it's not confrontational. It's not... Um, there's not not imposing in any way on anyone, you know. Even someone who doesn't really particularly believe in God or so should actually feel quite welcome there. It's open for. I mean, we try to explain to people that it is open for people of you know, different walks of life, regardless of whatever religion or creed. Right. So to me, it just sounds like you're focusing on the elements of design that unite and bring people together rather than divide them. So how do you hope the design and its purpose impacts the local Baha'i community and community at large? And what have been some of the attitudes and responses to the design and the establishment of this house of worship by the people of Papua New Guinea? There is, um, okay, maybe before I go to answer this, let me, there's a, there was a preacher out in the market. He was out in, the, we have these street preachers that go about and then, and then this guy, oh, he was, there was in um, another suburb just across um, like he was talking about a new house of worship. He, he, he didn't mention a Baha'i house of worship, but he was talking about a new building that's going to be constructed soon, and that building will, will for people from different religions or churches can go and you know worship God in it. It's interesting that 
there is a consciousness that exists now. So there's these people already talking about it, and some of them don't even know who is actually building this, that building. Interestingly, even before the house had um, announced the, um, the, the, the houses of worship, the, uh, the announcement was made in 2012. It was in 2012, a um, New Year's message by the Deputy Prime Minister at that time. The Deputy Prime Minister did a, had a media press release. And in that um, statement, he, he said that um, Papua New Guinea, you know, Papua New has a lot of churches. But Papua New do not need another church. In fact, that's what he was. I'm only saying what, I mean, these are my words, but in, in that sense, he was saying that Papua New do not need another church, but Papua New needs a house of prayer where any other people who didn't even go to church or people who have conflict between different churches can also attend and have a prayer. So it's interesting that in April, the House of Just, Universal House of Justice made an announcement and it just so kind of came in line with what the Deputy Prime Minister was saying. Just that one more thing, as Henry was mentioning the, the preacher, uh, it reminded me also of another thing that uh, differentiates this, uh, this space, the feeling of the temple, um, in that there would be no preachers, I mean there are no clergy in the Baha'i faith. That's right. um, there is no pulpit, there's no raised platform at the front, that's a, somehow a design stipulation, that it, everyone would be at the same level, both physically and also in reality, sim symbolically. And um, You know, when there's, as I mentioned, when there's no program, it would be a silent place for reflection. When there is a program, it's more like, um, it's likely to be a series of readers selected from the community or visitors to the temple. It might be writings of the Baha'i faith, the Baha'i scriptures, other, other world religions, um, but uh, probably limited to the writings themselves for the listeners to um, absorb, uh, reflect on, and so forth, and not their um, interpretation, you know, which is really up to the individual to um, interpret. The uh, emergence of the Baha'i community here from obscurity is also like we can't imagine uh, what that, uh, what wonders that'll do. I, I mean, the faith has been here for about 50, what is it, 70 years now. Um, but yes. still, as with many countries, it's a small, small community. Not that many people know about the Baha'i community. They know of them, but not so much what it stands for, or what it is. Yes. And, um, and I think it's reasonable to expect that this, uh, you know, although it's just a physical structure on the one hand, it's a beacon uh, and uh, it'll uh, really create a lot of questions at the very least and the friends will be ready hopefully yeah. to respond and welcome people who'd like to come. Mm, absolutely, how exciting. So what are the people or what's the community in Port Mosby doing now to prepare for the completion of the House of Worship? Well, for a start, they have some people, whenever from this is not only Port Mosby Baha'i, but the country whole nationwide. Friends, when they come for national convention, when they're passing through or on the other personal trips, they come into the city. They bring with them some kind of a plant, something that they can add to the nursery of the temple. And there's a group that came for national convention on day transit, and they spent few nights here. They decided to do some cleanup and you know help with the nursery. So people are. Friends, uh, Baha'is in particular are 
trying to give some form of you know service to these towards maybe coming here whenever they come for work or for private visits they have some kind of contribution bringing flowers or come work in the temple or the, within the vicinity of the temple and um, the community partners itself is gearing up we're trying to set up choir groups um, different people they're trying, there's a last Sunday just a few days ago a couple of days ago this the, the temple committee has gone out and put on up um, an appeal for friends to come and give in names to become guides and gardeners cleaners and you know general hands-on there's a list that's coming up so people are go, you know, going into the center giving in their names that's so sweet so the community is already feeling excited and they want to contribute now this might be a really tough question for you to answer but when do you hope the construction of the temple will be complete the national spiritual assembly the national governing body of the baha'is here have um, stipulated or requested that it should be complete by Rezvan of 2021. So um, in uh, two and a half years' time, um, and our current uh, timeline is, uh, the schedule is trying to achieve this and trying to come in earlier than this date. Um, it's PNG. It's a very difficult place to build in. Suppliers, uh, delays, access to equipment. But on the other hand, we have, we're fortunate to have um, some very experienced uh, friends supporting the project and a lot of expertise, you know, um, so we're trying everything we can to achieve and even um, surpass the, the, um, this mm -hmm. aim. So you've already lovingly shared how people inside the temple can commune with the creator, but Personally, as a musician, I'm always very curious about the types of music that we should be expecting to hear. So could you share or enlighten us a little bit as to what we should be expecting to hear in the House of Worship in Papua New Guinea? That, um, according to the brief, I'll say, the, the music within the houses, all houses of worship, are to be either sung through a choir, and it's all vocals, no instruments, no synthetic uh, synthesizers, it's just voices and um, it could be a choir and um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very um, it's a place of contemplation and meditation so it's not, it's not a, pretty much like every other church music that we hear but not the kind of church music that we hear nowadays where there is loud instruments. Again it's just voices, not not hip hop, I think. <laughs> right. So we shouldn't be expecting to hear hip hop in the temple. Now, in terms of choirs, choirs are a very European approach for a group of singers to come and stand in rows and sing in harmonies. What do choirs look like in Papua New Guinea? PNG have we have our own version of choir, and it could be different from the European version. Mm. But naturally, here people like singing. Almost everything that people do, they go garden and they sing. When a child is born, they sing. When someone dies, they sing. So almost everything they do is just like weaving. They sing and they weave. <laughs> so there is a... I mean, and, you know, it's not like... Um, in Ukraine, the, the choir is very structured. In PNG, the choir is wherever you feel comfortable in it, you find your voice and you fit yourself in it. So mm. there's not, not much structure in it. And will they be in, like... Motu, Pidgin, and English, a mixture of the languages? That's right. 
mm. right. even local languages too, as long as it's harmonious. People can appreciate. PBNG, I think everybody here appreciates any form of music. Right, I can imagine, like many houses of worship, the choir will probably be a real staple attraction for friends to come and, and hear local spiritual music. Yeah, absolutely stunning. Like the harmonies here, objectively speaking, sheer ability to harmonize at the level at which the friends here in PNG um, are able to. It's just really, really impressive. I'm not much of a musician, but I, from the first time I came here in 2002, then again in 2003, 2006, each time I was just blown away by the music um, in the villages in particular, some of which I recorded back in the day. Um, it's something that stays with you, both the, the, just the purity of the music, the lyrics, the, the um, informality in a way. You know, it's, mm. it's not a choir in a sense that you would expect, uh, although maybe one will be formed, you know, with proper dress and, you know, <laughs> um, cloaks or whatever they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, even in the village context, people sitting around the fire, sitting around in a, in a house, it just sounds absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I love how you also drew the weaving with singing. And these are kind of activities on the daily that people in Papua New Guinea take part in. So we're just coming to the end of our interview, but I want to ask, because this is obviously a career highlight for any Baha'i architect, what are some of the experiences or learning opportunities that you are going to walk away with? I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of humbling. It's, it's a very humbling experience that um, <clears throat> we're, it's, it's a, we feel it's a bounty that we've been assigned this task. Otherwise, it could be any other person, any other architect in the, in the world, so to speak. It's a journey. It's a process that... Um, Others have helped us to achieve. There were people who were in the background who actually coached us through the whole thing. And um, it was ups and downs. There's no smooth riding. And then finally this thing, you know, at some stage we were, we, the concept was there, but trying to manifest, put into the physical form was, was quite challenging. How do we put it in terms of it was not um, the only challenge because trying to capture something unique but something that um, can be realized in, in a physical form and especially when you consider the technological, the, the construction ability, the buildability was a big question. Even the concept of the buildability was a question. So we had to, we had to meet with other contract construction companies in town and yeah, for some of them I, I think that from the way I see from the responses, it was it could be a nightmare, but for for us, I think it this will be the uh, one of our major and well not one it will be I mean for me I think it will be the major undertaking, and yeah I think it will be the highlight of our lives I'll say, I'm sure. And how about for you, Said? Yeah, I mean as with as with all forms of service. Um, to the community, to the, within the Baha'i community also. Um, I feel that it's not really about, it's not so much about the individual contributions one is making, but more about the bounty of being, being in the position to make those contributions or to be able to serve in this way. What I mean is like, 
basically if it hadn't been us someone else would be involved and it's a huge bounty to to have the opportunity to be part of this project um as unqualified as young as uh, not as particularly green. <laughs> as green <laughs> as we are that the trust was placed in us and continues to be placed in us to um uh, drive the project forward together with a lot of support and um, I, I think we can't mention that enough that this is not the outcome of um, one or two or even three or four talented architects as might have been the case in other projects um, in, in this case it's really the fruit of a deep and constant collaboration over a very long period and the outcome the outcome of the guidance and requests from the National Spiritual Assembly, um, the Office of Temples and Sites, uh, which has been set up to guide these uh, current and subsequent houses of worship. So we, yeah, yeah we feel absolutely. like we're part of a much larger team, a small part of a much larger team of people. We're all looking forward to seeing what you both come up with next, So, but no pressure. <laughs> Uh, I want to thank you both so much for your time today. Unfortunately, you've come to the end of our Cloud9 episode. I know how busy you both are, and I'm, I'm truly grateful for your time. I feel that I've gained such an insider's perspective on the spiritual and physical scope of this work. And although I'm not in Papua New Guinea, I feel the excitement and the anticipation on the other side of the world. So thank you both for your service and for your time thank today. Thank you so much thank for you. the opportunity to share share these things with you. and with the friends who are listening. Hope you enjoyed. Thank you again. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Baha'iteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.